Hey, I'm Veronica Dagger, and this is the Wall Street Journal Secrets of Wealthy Women, where women share how they tackle career, money, and the world. Knowing you can survive a personal crisis may empower you to handle other types of crises, like the one we're in due to the coronavirus. Julie Smolanski knows this well. She's the CEO of Lifeway Foods, which is known for its probiotic milk drink called Kefir. It's like drinkable yogurt, and her family helped bring it to the mainstream here in the U.S. Before the pandemic started, we interviewed Julie, who took over Lifeway from her parents. She was the youngest female CEO of a publicly traded company at the time, and she's still one of the youngest. Taking over was a huge challenge for Julie, and now almost two decades later, she faces new ones. How to keep her family business on top and adapting the business during the coronavirus crisis, all amid more competition and changing consumer tastes. Now Julie's had to face fresh challenges. Part of this episode was recorded before the pandemic. At the end, we recently got back in touch with Julie. So welcome, Julie. Thanks for having me, Veronica. My pleasure. And so for those of us who've never heard of Kiefer, many of us have, but for those who haven't, what is it and why is it so important to your family? Sure. So Kiefer is a fermented dairy product that's about 2,000 years old um, that originated in the Caucasus Mountains, which is a region that is where um, like Russia and Ukraine is. Um, And my parents and I were refugees from the former Soviet Union. Um, And so this is, uh, kefir is something that my ancestors uh, knew about, that they uh, continued to use generation to generation, and it survived through word of mouth. The cultures create uh, the gases that create this effervescence. And it's a probiotic. It's actually the original probiotic. And so my ancestors intuitively knew how to heal their bodies uh, through this product. So how did your family bring kefir to America? When my parents were growing up in the Soviet Union, they hated life there. I mean, they were stifled. They were um, persecuted. And so my both my mother and father had dreams of escaping the Soviet Union. And so through a slit in the Iron Curtain in 1976, one year after I was born, uh, my parents defected. And we were in exile in Rome for three months. And then we landed in Chicago. We were the first of 48 families that were settled in Chicago at that time from that immigration group. And my parents really paved the way for a lot of other immigrants who came this way. And they trailblazed. And along the way, my mother opened her first, the first Russian deli. And that sort of uh, was, again, an intuitive uh, sense of, you know, feeding your family, feeding your community. So food was really a part of my family's, um, you know, history and and, uh, prosperity, too. And so uh, along the way, my father was an engineer and he, you know, they were uh, 10 years into the immigration process uh, in Germany at a trade show to buy food for their deli. And at that point, my mom became an importer and distributor of Eastern European food. She was cutting international deals with people all over the world. My dad bought the first three bottles of kefir there in Germany in 1985. And he said, oh, my God, America has everything, but it doesn't have kefir. And my mom said, well, you're an engineer, you should make it and, you know, build a plant, make the product, and I'll sell it through my distribution. 
distribution system. And six months later, they incorporated Lifeway Foods. Kiefer now exists in America because of immigration, because my parents had bravely taken this risk to venture into this unknown journey of life in America. And, you know, we're now 33 years in in business. Um, and I've been running it for, for like 17 years. Such a neat story. Yeah. What were your first memories of the business? Yeah, I mean, I remember I was about 11 years old and being in our basement in the North Shore suburbs of Skokie in our little townhouse. Um, and uh, I remember my father working on batch after batch and just these for pots and pots of fermentation happening in the basement, <laughs> like bubbling and like always like tasting all of these various you know, pots of fermentation and, you know, fermented milk and lots of milk. Um, I loved it. I just absolutely loved it. I love the taste of like that tart, tangy um, cultured milk. I really, really love uh, the the taste. So you were in the basement and you saw your dad working on this for hours at a time and going to the office, presumably. Were you right away? Were you like, I want to be part of this business? No. I wanted nothing to do with it. You know, I resented the business actually from ta- for taking my parents away. Mm. I really uh, was angry that they were never there. and But they were working. And I mean, I, I'm so grateful today, of course. But at the time, I was a, you know, a kid and I just wanted to be with my parents. But, um, you know, in this idea of like work-life balance, it's interesting. It's it's a luxury. It's for immigrants, for first-generation immigrants, that's not a concept. My parents, <laughs> I, there were months where I didn't see my dad. Like three months would go by, but he was putting food on the table. I mean, we came to America with $116. Wow. We were the first families here. They didn't speak a word of English. My mom learned English watching General Hospital. Incredible. Um, you know, they they had to start from the ground up in their 20s with an infant before any, they didn't, I mean, I can't even articulate the challenges that uh, that they had to go through. And so I wanted nothing to do with the business. I wanted to be a psychologist and uh, I wanted to change the world, <laughs> as cliche as that sounded and sounds. Um, I wanted to help people, but, um, and I started that process and I was in grad school and I was studying psychology. I'd never taken a business class. It was the biggest fight my dad and I had when I was in high school and college was that I didn't take a business class and he really wanted me to take over the business. And I was adamant that I was not going to do that. Um, and serendipity, uh, I was in the field working in in, uh, in the field in psychology. I was working as an in-home family counselor in Chicago. I was in really rough neighborhoods, really naive about where I was and what I was doing. And uh, really unprepared, but also, anyways, I had an experience. It wasn't a good one, and I quit my job that that night. And I just called my dad and said, "Hey, uh, can I just work for you like ten hours a week, data entry, while I finished grad school?" But within two weeks, I fell in love with what he was doing, and I just finally clicked. <laughs> and this vision, this mission, this purpose that I had of wanting to help people or improve people's lives, I found a path to doing that by helping my family in the business and my father. And 
But I'd always thought that kefir was just this Russian product from my grandmother, and I didn't think it was cool. And I was in the office doing data entry for my dad, and I was listening to how he was talking about it and marketing and talking to the customers. It's like lightning hit me, and I just it, it clicked. And, and then the call came, and then I was like, that's it. I know exactly what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. So you said you initially resented your parents for the business and because they spent so much time there. Did working at the company change your relationship with your parents? Very much so. Um, I think that what I also really enjoyed uh, was working with my father in the five years that I got to and learn from him. And we really repaired our relationship in a lot of ways. we had some of the greatest conversations, um, really fun business journeys and travel. And he was really proud of me. I mean, um, I had my first sales call. Uh, I just called the buyer up out of the blue after a customer called and asked for a product at his local grocery store. It was Lucky's. Um, I still remember Miriam Welch. She took the call. She was the category manager. And she uh, invited me in to see her. And my parents had never sent me on a trip. I'd never traveled by myself. I wasn't allowed to go away to school for college. The immigrant girls, like, you know, I wasn't allowed to leave. <laughs> so my mom, my dad sent my mom with me on my first business trip to keep me safe. But I walked in with, with my little flip chart of my sales Aww. presentation. And she still, she emailed me recently and she said, your presentation was the most passionate one. It was so real. It was so different than everything I saw. And she took my product and the whole grocery store at Lucky's. And my father could not believe I had done that. And that was his first sale that anybody else had made aside from him. So that was when we were about six million in revenue. So in like 1997, once that happened, like he he was really proud of, you know, some of those wins that I had. And he he was teaching me everything. He would he wanted me to be like a sponge Mm -hmm. and he really empowered me. He um you know, when Dana and Group Danone had acquired 20% of our company, and uh, he was alive for that. He he drove that. But in all of the due diligence, it was just me and him. Mm. Um, and he trusted me to do that, to lead it. So here I was, like 22, doing negotiating with the CEO of Danone. In Paris. I mean, a multi-billion dollar multinational company. And I didn't even understand how large that was. I was just doing my thing, my passion for my business and my product. And so, you know, he really empowered me. And, you know, he said at shareholder meetings, he always had me do presentations and he always pushed me out front. Um, And when he was asked um, uh, about a week before he passed away, it was like a sign or a a message to me. One of the shareholders said, it's, well, Mike, you're like a one-man act. What happens if something happens to you? And he said, my children have learned everything about the business. I have no fears that anything, there there would be an issue in, in a transition. And hearing that message was really important for me. To hear it from him was really important. Uh, so w- when he had a heart attack, when he suddenly had his heart attack when I was 27 and he was 55, um, I it wasn't even a question for me that I could take over because he had told me that I could. Mm. And I had learned a lot from him. What were those first 24 to 48 hours after he died like for you? 
it was one of the most traumatic things that I think anyone will go through, uh, especially if it's a sudden experience. But I think any time when you lose your your parent, it's incredibly traumatic. It was sudden. He had a heart attack, un- unexpected. And uh, he was like in the prime of his life. He was the center of our community. He was, uh, it, it shocked people like beyond it shocked me. And, you know, one thing that I remember is in this moment of crisis, uh, my fierce sense of protection for the company and the people who work with us and for us and our vendors and our suppliers and all of our customers. And, you know, there was his best friend three feet away from me was talking to somebody else and being so like like as though I didn't exist or see me says to me or says to the, the other person, there's no way in a 27-year-old a, a girl could run this company. The company's over. It's done. Jeez. Sell your stock. There's no more com- There's no more Lifeway. It's over. Wow. And I was so angry. Mm-hmm. You know, my fight or flight response is so strong. The fight, that warrior instinct in me, my survival instincts, my resilience, all of that came to the top. I was like fire, you know, and I just, I didn't even say anything to him, but I just went into my office, that into my father's office that night, and I got to work, and I haven't stopped. <laughs> and I proved him wrong, obviously. So um, that inspires me every day to this day, and I am so grateful, you know, I at the time I was really resentful of it. But today, and, you know, men, I, I look at it with such gratitude. Um, I say thank you to, to the haters. Did you do anything special in those early days just to get yourself out of bed, right? Because you've got the stress, you've got the critics, you've got the grief. I was in such shell shock that I was just running on endorphins. It was a rough, rough four years. Um, the first year, just I... You know, I don't remember a whole lot. It's such a trauma. It's such a crisis um, just to stabilize everything. But I remember, like, doing things like like we didn't have a sign in front of the building. And I was like, we need a sign. And, you know, it was the most insignificant decision in the business. But I needed to make a decision. You know, I needed to just make decisions and and do something, take some kind of action. And, and it was like... I just remember being obsessed with the sign and like how I needed to have a sign in front of the company so that everyone knew that Lifeway is here and we're not going anywhere. What advice would you give to women who want to take that stretch job or a job that other people say, oh, you're not ready for that? Do it. Who says you're not ready? I mean, you know, we all have skills and things to bring to the table. No one is going to give you power. Just take it. You just have to take it. Lifeway is a niche company that basically sells kefir-related products, and you are a trendsetter. But trends can also turn. So right now, milk consumption in the United States has declined significantly, and several dairy producers have closed. Milk is the main input for your flagship product. So how are you dealing with those industry pressures? Yeah, it is uh it is uh, an interesting time. I honestly never thought I would see the day when dairy has been demonized like it has been. Um and I think it's uh you know, the pendulum will swing. I don't think it's forever. I think like we've seen this with fat-free and, you know, uh 
uh, carb-free and Atkins diets. I, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily um, going to always be like this. I think it's in part a little bit of a trend. At the same time, I do believe that the plant-based movement is not going anywhere. I, um, I think that, uh, you know, f- for us, we saw this happening about four years ago, and we started to uh, innovate and formulate a plant-based dairy-free alternative. Uh, so we just recently launched Plantiful, which is a plant-based dairy-free probiotic alternative. So you know, Plantiful is really um, uh, it really appeals to people who are concerned about the environment, who are looking, who are making the changes for climate change reasons. Um, we're we're hearing that now. The great thing is that, again, kefir is, our traditional authentic kefir is a 2,000-year-old product that survived war and famine and, um, you know, a, a very storied history um, that that it tells me, and um, I am 100% certain that kefir will continue to exist for another 2,000 years. So looking back, what advice would you give to the 27-year-old Julie? Uh, don't worry. It all works out uh, to trust the universe and to enjoy the ride. I have spent a lot of energy in the course of my life in a place of anxiety, um, and a lot was kind of on my shoulders, um, a lot of responsibility, and I didn't always show that to the outside world, but I'm mean, like tear up. <laughs> but I, I carried that uh, a lot, and... Um, you know, t- today I wish I maybe spent less time in anxiety and more time really, you know, just confident that, that it would be okay. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we recently checked back with Julie to see how she's adjusted to industry pressures and COVID-19. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. Robert Half is here to help. Our recruiting professionals utilize our proprietary AI to connect businesses with highly skilled talent. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Great to see you again, Julie. Good to see you, or virtually at least. You too. First, how are you doing? Uh, well, I'm doing well. Uh, you know, I think we're all kind of settling into the new normal and maybe stabilizing after, you know, the initial shock of March and April and getting you know, adjusted to how things are going to be. It seems like we are, you know, we've gone through like a collective trauma of sort and now we are adapting to what the reality is and trying to navigate and kind of figure out what this new normal is for everybody. So, um, you know, initially I think there was a lot of, um, adrenaline in play for us to respond, for leaders to respond, and for everyday families just, 
you know, trying to understand what this kind of crisis means to us individually, collectively, to our communities, um, our family members, loved ones, companies, workplaces. I mean, that's why it's a global pandemic. You know, we're all going through um, a whole range of emotions and, you know, myself included. And yeah, I think it's just been exhausting is an understatement. And uh, I think just adjusting. One of the things we talked about pre-pandemic was how dairy had taken a hit. So I'm just wondering, how are you adjusting to the industry pressures amid coronavirus? Yeah, well, it's interesting because we aren't just a straight dairy. We're also fermented. And fermented foods and gut health are really thriving. You know, one of the challenges was keeping up with the demand. And I think we've learned a lot in this process because, you know, being an essential business, we've remained operational and we've really been like working on overtime just to keep up with the demand on top of the extra demands from food pantries and supplying healthcare workers, uh, you know, we've already delivered over 70,000 servings of product to food pantries, which has not been easy, you know, in the middle of a global pandemic, you know, just navigating all these changes in protocol and, you know, first and foremost, keeping the teams healthy and um, making sure that, you know, th that everyone was aware of the changing protocols, which sometimes was changing by the minute and by the hour, um, you know, keeping up to date with CDC guidelines and, and just, you know, making sure that we knew as much information as was happening. And it, this, this situation is so fluid and just trying to be, you know, three, four, five steps ahead of it. Um, has been really, I think, the stressful things. You know, you're talking about ramping up production um, because of higher demand. I know the coronavirus has had a major impact on several factories. So I'm just wondering, how has Lifeway been affected? And have you had to close any factories or plants? Well, all of our plants have remained operational, but we have rotated uh, workloads to allow for some temporary stoppages and, you know, to allow uh, preventative maintenance to happen to protect the health and safety of our employees. Um, we've been able to reconfigure our facilities and workflow to make social distancing part of our procedures. We also have three production facilities, which has been uh, able, which has given us the capability to work in different segments and increase our deep cleaning and sanitization uh, schedules. That those were some, you know, really key kind of uh, intuitive things that we we started very early on in this. Um, we started to cross train our staff. Um, working in various phases, beginning with the most complex production, uh, covering all the bases uh, down to shipping, warehousing, story, storage, um, really being proactive and following that intuitive uh, gut feeling. I, I had an impending sense of doom, I think, uh, the very first week of March, that inner intuition, that gut feeling, I think really saved us here and being proactive saved us lots of headaches. Um, but more than that, I think saved lives uh, and, and helped keep uh, our team as safe as possible. You know, building extra inventory. Uh, I remember in the first week of March, I uh, 
told and, and directed the team to um, start to build about seven weeks of inventory. And this made it a lot easier to uh, shift as, as the situations were changing. You know, this was not rocket science for us in terms of what we needed to do. I'm really happy that we kind of took the risk and ramped up our inventory, despite the fact that in food manufacturing, it's well known that everyone is doing just-in-time manufacturing. Most uh, food companies, most food distributors, most retailers only have about three days of inventory on hand at any given moment. So to take this big dramatic step and, you know, within two weeks produce seven weeks of inventory is unheard of. It, it is not something that is done. And so then when the uh, stockpiling order started to come through mid to late March, we were able to turn it around and deliver on that, that increased demand. What has this pandemic taught you about entrepreneurship? Well, um, so many things. Uh, it's not about who has the most money. It's not about who has access to um, the most intelligence uh, or the highest, you know, degrees, let's say in a, you know, it's not about that. It's about survival is, is really about the ability to adapt and respond to that situation that's ahead of you and playing the cards that are dealt to you and finding the opportunities um, and pivoting when you need to. Um, it's also taught me about compassion, about recognizing that everyone is approaching this uh, pandemic from a different point. So, you know, understanding and having that compassion and empathy to see that all of us are seeing this from a different place and to also understand the privilege and to, to check that privilege, to know that, you know, um, that I have a different privilege than somebody else does and that I should, you know, also be aware and compassionate about that. And, um, and again, be grateful for those essential workers, you know, the truckers, the, the farmers, the grocery store checkout count, um, uh, workers, you know, everyone, all of supply chain, how much we rely on them uh, for our day-to-day -day life. Um, you know, this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. That's another thing that I've learned and continue to learn. I've, I've run several marathons, but those lessons that I've taken as a runner, as an athlete, as an endurance athlete, I've definitely been thinking about the big picture in these, these last few weeks. Um, and, uh, you know, recognizing self-care. This is in I'm in the business of self-care that uh, it's important for myself too. Um, it's so easy as an entrepreneur type A, you know, someone who thrives in crisis, like I'm very comfortable in crisis. I know crisis very well um, that I also have to at some point crash and take care of myself. Um, but the great thing is at this point, I have a good toolbox of things that I know um, are helpful to me and that I want to encourage others and offer it to as many people as possible. Thanks again for coming on. It was great to catch up with you, Julie. Oh, thank you so much. It was great to talk to you and share. Thanks again to Julie for joining us. If you'd like to hear more stories of inspiring women, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite audio provider. If you like us, subscribe, share us on social media, and give us a review. 
Our producer is Trine Nori. Our executive producer is Kateri Yokum. Additional help from personal finance editor Bray Lamb. I'm Veronica Dagger. Hang in there, Secrets listeners. You've got this. Thanks for listening. <laughs>